Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. This is the time of week when we huddle with local journalists and work out what happened this week and what it means. And I'm so happy to have Stranger Editor Chase Burns with me. Hey, Chase. Hey, Bill. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. That's right. First show back together. Uh, Fox 13 reporter Jennifer Lee. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. Northwest News Network and KUOW correspondent Anna King. Anna, pleasure to see you too. Great to be here, Bill. And we are recording this program live on Friday at noon Pacific Standard Time. Standard Time, the best kind of time there is. It's the same thing that Arizona, Hawaii, all the territories have. It's the natural time defined by the sun. It's best for our sleep and our health. That is amateur astronomer JP this week, supporting a bipartisan group of state lawmakers who want us to quit changing our clocks back and forth twice a year. Ditch daylight saving time and stick with permanent standard time. Chase, is this actually going to happen? I don't know. I feel like it's sort of Groundhog Day because we keep coming back to this issue and we keep not being able to do it. I have a hard time deciphering between Pacific Standard Time and Daylight Savings Time. I don't know. I feel like I have to look it up like 17 times every single year to know the difference. I am just in support of anything that means we don't have to change the clocks every every however many times a year we have to do it. Got it. Got it. The D battery problem or whatever that thing is called. Anna would uh, the, the, I get see I was just I just free associated change clocks change uh, smoke alarm batteries. Uh, I, I hope I would do it without the, the clock change. Anna would Eastern Washington go along with this? Would they would they secede? Would they create their own conservative time zone? What do you think? The reaction. <laughs> Re- Reagan time. Basically, like, you know, the, the ag workers out here are on the sunlight bit time. You know what I mean? So, like, mm. we get up and beat the heat, especially in the summertime. Uh, many farm workers are heading to work at like 3:30 or 4 in the morning, and they're stopping by um, Mexican bakeries, getting a couple pastries for the road. And then they're out to the fields and they have maybe a 45 minute hour, you know, drive. So I don't think time is really relevant in the same way out here. Like we, we rise with the sun. Wow. That sounds so, so uh, old timey, but you're in, you're, you're in Richland. I mean, it's, you're saying that's a real significant East West difference. Yeah. I mean, we, we go to work when it's not hot and when we can do the work outside, uh, you know, and and I, when I'm saying we, I guess I mean East, many Eastern Washington folks that are working either at Hanford or working in the fields where they are really exposed to the elements. Yeah. Jennifer, why should we continue to have daylight saving time if people are just going to call it daylight savings time anyway? <laughs> uh, it's just not working. See, I, I think being consistent is helpful. I mean, like, like my organized mind likes to think like everyone on the West Coast will follow like the same time. But I wonder if we change, like, won't that be confusing as you're traveling from like state to state even more? Hmm. Um but I don't know. I kind of like having the extra sun in the summer for sure. But it is weird when I'm waking up close to like eight in the morning and it's still dark outside. So, <laughs> well, if they if they propose creating extra sun, I would vote for that. If we if we wouldn't just shift the clock, we would actually create more sunshine. Uh, I would be on board. Let's talk. Let's get into the news of the week here. Speaking of uh, of confusing, uh, since you just mentioned that word. Uh, what about schools this week? Did, did your child go to school? Maybe the answer took even you by surprise because some parents got little notice before their schools went remote or canceled classes because of a lack of staff, occasionally a lack of students. Jennifer, why didn't districts just decide to go remote for, say, two weeks and then evaluate from there? Why the day-to-day mystery, pop-up mysteries? I know it's like ping pong, but you're literally like unsure who's going to get the ball here. And I think it was really frustrating for a lot of families because you're literally like on the edge. Like, are we going or are we not? Are we getting lessons or is school just closed? And like, for example, Kimball Elementary School here in Seattle, I mean, they were first closed earlier in the week and it was a day by day case, like you said. Um, But although I think 
switching back to remote is probably easier now than it was at the start of the pandemic when, when all the educators were starting from scratch. I do think there's like a level of challenge that's also different with the elementary level uh, learning aged kids, as opposed to high school where, you know, those students are older, they're able to actually have their own self-study days in the beginning. And for example, at Lake Washington School District, the first two days of remote, the students were pretty much on their own while the teachers were preparing lessons to be remote starting on Wednesday. So I think it's just the structure of learning that is very challenging to coordinate. And also schools don't wanna be remote if they can help it. But obviously there's a lot of absences happening on both the staffing and student level. Yeah, Chase, is this the way it's always gonna be, you think? Or at least, you know, as, as far as we know, the p- pandemic's gonna be unpredictable for a while. Is this the thing? Um, I think we're in a unique Omicron phase. And so as long as the cases are rising and they're, they're still looking like they're rising, I think that we're going to keep seeing this kind of stop and go approach. But with the, you know, with the student protests that are being talked about over the next week and with the potential sick outs that students are talking about in the Seattle area. Would you say um, more, Chase, I, for those who don't know about some some students are sort of threatening a strike? They want safety protocols, et cetera. Yeah. And so some classes that have gone remote, they're coming back on like Tuesday, they're expecting to. And there are certain safety protocols that they're asking for. They want more um, testing in the schools. They want um, boosters to be more available. Specifically, they want more masks to be available. You know, we, we talked like a week ago, the governor said that we got a bunch more masks that are going to be distributed to, um, you know, uh, community centers, to schools. And I, I spoke with a, a freshman this week. Uh, who wrote a guest editorial for us who was saying like, you know, we haven't seen the plans on when those masks will be distributed. So a lot of students feel um, generally unsafe when they're going into the, to school settings, um, not just students, also teachers. Um, and so there, there's like a varying list of demands depending on the schools and depending on the students. And so you have different groups that are talking about um, potentially doing sick outs or, or protests and not going into school. Um, I do think that those are going to force us along with the rising case counts to to think about making a more uniform decision. I know that uh, school districts kind of have their hands tied. Um, KUW's done reporting on this about how basically they need the public health department to provide a recommendation that the school district as a whole should go to remote for a certain amount of time. Um, I think we're kind of nearing that as we have all these, these scattered cases. Um, and, and I just, when you talk to students and when you talk to parents, they're asking for just some clarity. Like we knew that Omicron was gonna hit a huge case count. We're seeing that the the research is, is, uh, the predictions are being borne out. And so I think we just need to, uh, a lot of parents are confused. You know, they're like, why are, why are we still guessing every single day? Um, And I, I bet if we met next week, we would have more clarity on this. Yeah. I mean, while we're watching case counts as well, you know, is Omicron, is it going to, is it going to start dropping off? Like we're seeing what we've seen in other places. And Anna, meanwhile, um, it's not like remote schooling works great for 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 all parents either no you know just the women in my own personal community i'm 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 not a mother myself but i i really uh feel and hear the strain on on these mothers who are kind of having to make a spreadsheet daily just to figure out who's going where and what's happening and uh what their work is requiring or not requiring um, big employers out here, like the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, are considering having their whole workforce back in the buildings uh, in, in a month or so. And, and that is thousands and thousands of workers. Um, it's our Boeing, perhaps you could say. It's one of our largest employers. And so um, that just creates even more stress on, on some of these people who have been at least having the work from home option to deal with school uh, up and downs. Um, even my own family in, in Pierce County, uh, my sister-in-law is a teacher and she has three little girls and, you know, one of her girls' schools closed down. So she had to find emergency childcare for that child while she taught at a out of school and had her two others going to school. That's a lot on a daily basis to handle for, for these 
women, especially uh, who are taking on a lot of the childcare. I know dads do a lot too, but um, I'm hearing mostly from my women friends. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the Washington State Hospital Association is saying this is the worst off they've been since the pandemic started. At Newport Hospital near Spokane, this is Christina Wager saying it's not just the public getting sick. We have a lot of sick employees, so they're out. Uh, We have a lot of people who are just burned out. I think the term is emotional (laughs) exhaustion. We are all from our lab to environmental services to our front desk to our nurses uh, very tired of what we're seeing. And, and here we go with another peak. Hospitals are saying, don't go to the ER, please, just because you tested positive. They are Hospitals are crowded with patients who don't really need hospital care. Hospitals can't turn them away. So they're canceling non-urgent procedures and surgeries. Governor Inslee Uh, ordered a four-week pause on elective surgeries and non-urgent procedures. The governor is deploying 100 members of the National Guard, sending them to hospitals, uh, four hospitals at least, from Everett to Spokane. Guard members will set up new testing sites outside hospitals in Seattle, Tacoma, Olympia, Richland. And uh, the governor is also calling on retired health care workers to come back temporarily to help with testing and uh, COVID vaccinations. Anything more to say on our our first story this week here on Week in Review, talking about the state of the pandemic, our our schools, et cetera? I think in the employment uh, climate that we're in, uh, employers who are are being a little bit more uh, relaxed about when you come in, when you go to work, when, you know, what days you take off during a week, uh, that kind of thing they're uh, succeeding at attracting and retaining workers where others are perhaps not. And for one example, I talked to um, a winemaker who uh, also has a a big vineyard down toward Walla Walla this morning. And he said, that's one of the things that they've been able to attract workers is just by saying to these mothers or other people that are their workers, if you need to come in at, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, that's fine with us. Work your hours a little later in the day so you can get all those kids to the different schools and activities they need to go to. So uh, I thought that was interesting that employers are actually using this to their advantage. You are listening. Yes, go ahead, Jennifer. I was just going to say, yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people are in need of support from all directions right now, especially with everything else kind of pulling them (laughs) in all directions. And I think also going back to Chase's point earlier, I think that um, it's kind of yet to be seen where this evolution is going to go with Omicron and schooling. Um, I was having a, a conversation with a parent earlier this week who his friend goes to Lake Washington School District. Their kid obviously is remote learning. He's literally right next door in a community um, that isn't remote. So he thinks, especially with you know a lot of the interaction that happens with school sports across different districts, that it kind of makes sense to um, not just go school by school, but maybe surrounding districts as well. Mm-hmm. That's Jennifer Lee from uh, Fox 13, and uh, you're listening to Week in Review. We've got Chase Burns here from The Stranger. We have Anna King, Northwest News Network, and KU Adonit. Uh, you're listening. You could also be watching the show because we're live streaming it on YouTube and Facebook. And we'll take a short break and continue with more of the news of the week. We will talk uh, the the little ball and the lower net, and we'll talk about the uh, the wet snow and where are the onions and more when Week in Review comes right back. Don't go away. Good job tuning in for Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke with KOW and Northwest News Network's Anna King, Fox 13 reporter Jennifer Lee, and Stranger editor Chase Burns. We're covering the big news of the week, including the proposal in the legislature to make pickleball our official state sport since it was invented on Bainbridge Island. In case you don't know, pickleball is played on a badminton-sized court, the net slightly lower than a tennis net. You use paddles instead of rackets. The ball is like a more durable wiffle ball, and it doesn't involve a lot of exercise. You don't really have to get very sweaty in pickleball. This is the sound of the 2021 Men's Doubles 
pickleball championship contenders. They're hitting the ball quite softly. These are known as dink rallies. We're going to see a lot of these dink rallies, especially these cross-court dink rallies between Colin Johns and, and Adam Stone. And obviously, it, we call a dink something that bounces in the kitchen or is close to the kitchen. I do like my sports close to the kitchen, Chase. Uh, do you think the legislature will make pickleball our state sport, or is it just too divisive? <laughs> are we as, are we we as have... gridlocked as a, as a champion dink rally? Um, I don't know. We have a, a short session. It's only 60 days, but I do expect that this is going to happen, if only because yesterday uh, when the governor did his press conference, um, he showed up like 30 minutes late and then right at the top, I guess to apologize his lateness, he he jumped in by talking about pickleball and he was like, I just want to say I'm all in for making pickleball the state sport. Mm. And <laughs> I have heard from so many people this this echoed, so I guess that I, I would expect that this is not that difficult of uh, of a debate. That being said, I um, I really couldn't tell you what pickleball is, but, but you informed me very well. I've been asking <laughs> people about it. I I learned that it was like it's named after a dog named Pickle. And that's a little confusing to me because I was sort of like, should we call it pickles ball? Because pickle ball makes you think it's a pickle ball, but it was a dog's ball. There's a lot of a lot of questions I have about pickle. It's ball, like Bill, daylight but... savings time all over again. Is it pickles ball? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I whose ball is it? Whose ball is it? Whose ball is it? Uh, <laughs> Jennifer, Anna, are you are you champion pickleball players? Have you taken up? The Definitely sport? not. But I am in support of it. I was actually really pleasantly surprised to learn that it was a sport that was created here in Washington State. Love it here. And, you know, this actually made me love Washington State even more. So and it's also pretty impressive because, you know, having moved around, I lived in New York State, Connecticut. It's so popular. And someone has told me before it's the fastest growing sport in America. Mm hmm. And an acquaintance of mine is actually a professional pickleball player. So definitely like very far removed, but I see her social media posts and she's also sponsored by Wilson pickleball. So, I mean, it's, it's huge. It's a thing, Anna. Can we, can we get like some horseback pickleball going on here? And like, so kind of, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I think, I think that could be entertaining, you know, they're, they're a little, they have to have the reins in one hand and their and their little uh, ball hitter thing in the other hand. I don't know. Kind of a polo mashup. I like it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. California and Hawaii have surfing. Minnesota has ice hockey. Alaska has dog mushing. Wyoming has rodeo. Maryland's official sport is jousting. Uh, Colorado's, I would have thought, would be skiing. But Colorado's official state sport is pack burrow racing. A little bit closer to, to Anna's concept. So um, I guess skiing is actually still open for us. We could do pickleball or uh, skiing or perhaps avalanche control, which is what I want to talk about next. Maybe the sport is our sport is mountain snow removal, because this week our mountain passes finally became passable. Um, we've had this wet snow that is heavy and is prone to avalanche. It's not all light and fluffy. I mean, you had to smack it like 12 times. It was like trying to break up somebody's hard-packed snowball. The town's maintenance superintendent says about two feet of snow buried their small town. Yeah, we've been busy. We've actually, there's everybody, you know, this little community-driven, everybody's working to get through, you know, storms like that. We don't see storms like that all the time. <laughs> that report from... Fox 13's Jennifer Lee. Jennifer, you went to, I think it was Index on Highway 2. It was Index and it was beautiful. And I think everyone who lives up in that direction knows that and it's why they live there. But even for them, they were impressed by the snow because it just kept coming and coming. And um, like you said, it was just very hard packed, really difficult to remove. Um, and a lot of the towns needed extra help like Leavenworth. Right. Who did you meet uh, that really stayed with you, uh, Jennifer? Um, I think really everyone, because everyone was just so positive about it. Um, they had such a good, uh, you know, spirit, spirit and resilience about them through the weather. Um, and I think they understood that, you know, this was something that they had to deal with um, and they chose to live there. 
Um, but, you know, even the two people that you just heard from, such characters, next door neighbors, um, and, you know, it's just a small town feel. And uh, that gentleman you just heard from, he's a maintenance supervisor in Index, but also works up at Stevens Pass, the ski resort. So everything is just so interconnected in that direction. Yeah, the uh, folks in Index and Leavenworth could not get over Stevens Pass. Snoqualmie, White Pass, Blewett all got cut off at some point. I-5 was closed because of flooding around Chehalis. Anna, I was going to visit you in Richland, but I would have had to go west across Asia and Europe and through LaGuardia, and um, I just I just couldn't do that. We, it was it was quite a we were we were a stranded region. Yeah, it was uh, really intense. I had several um, couples of friends that were stuck in in Seattle or Tacoma. You know, um, one was uh, visiting their son who's like in his twenties, and um, you know it was kind of cute, like you could tell like it's great to have mom and dad for like a week, but like, mm. you know, week two, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, by the way, I, I, we complain here in the Puget sound area of being underprepared for snow. You were saying s- some Eastern Washington towns don't have enough equipment for what happened. Yeah. For instance, like here in the tri cities and in, in uh, Kennewick, Pasco and Richland, we only get normally like seven, eight inches of rain a year that, you know, so when you think about a snowstorm that can bring like four or five inches, um, we're just not ready for it. We're just, we have like a couple plows and they do sometimes the major roads, but um, I was surprised even days after that snow event, our major, uh, you know, causeways were still really uh, junked up with snow and um, it was really slick. They would ice up, especially at night. And so it would just be like a a skating rink. There was many, many accidents here. Hmm. Chase, we were mentioning skiing earlier. That's been a sore spot lately. Yeah, Gregory Scruggs and the Seattle Times had a good feature out this week about um, all the issues happening at Stevens Pass and how the pass hasn't been able to open up um, a lot of their trails and how you have a lot of people, something like almost 40,000 people have signed this change.org petition asking for refunds because they spent all this money on these passes that the resort had sent out um, and they aren't able to access a lot of aspects of the resort. Um, And uh, in his report, uh, Scruggs was saying how he was skiing around and it was like a ghost town up there. Um, And then there's a lot of issues that pop up out of that where the, the, there's a staffing issue, which we're seeing, it's kind of the through line of today's show. There's staffing issues all over. And uh, there's a staffing issue at Stevens Pass. They can't, they, they can't open up a lot of the stuff. A lot of that has to do with um, the, the, the rising costs of living in that area and also wages that they're offering. A lot of people are complaining that the wages aren't high enough to meet the rising cost of living. And so you just have this really complicated issue. And to, to make it kind of more complicated, the pass is run by uh, Vail, uh, what is it called? Uh, yeah, Vail Resorts. Vail Resorts um, out of Colorado. Out of Colorado. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was thinking a lot about cancellations again this week because we're starting to see them and how in March 2020, you know, we had all these cancellations and a lot of people were saying like, hey, if you if you can, don't ask for a refund because a lot of these businesses are struggling. And in that time, a lot of a lot of people who had the means were able to do that and they weren't asking for refunds because they liked the venue or they liked the artist. But in this instance, I think with Vail Resorts, them being an out-of-state corporation that just announced that they have like something over like a billion dollars on hand, that goodwill is not necessarily extended. And so you have a lot of skiers and snowboarders who are are pretty upset at Stevens Pass. Yeah, I've heard people say Stevens Pass understaffs their resort. It kind of, it reminds me of the way people talk about it, like airlines, where they're trying to to be lean and mean. So you, which just makes for longer lift lines and rental lines and and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't, can't speak to that personally, but I've heard the complaint. And I wonder. I did what I thought of you, Anna. In Anna King is with us from Richland. Whenever now, especially since the drought and the fires, I'm always partly monitoring rainfall and snowpack and thinking, is this, is this great news yet for farmers or, or, and fire danger or too early to say that, do you think? 
Yeah, I just uh, checked out the, you know, national, the federal drought monitor this morning. And I was kind of curious to see, like, did this snowfall kind of tip us over the uh, precipice as far as uh, not being in drought anymore? And it, it really hasn't. The total uh, snowfall is great. And that is great in the mountains as it really helps. But uh, the precipitation, especially in some of the lowland southeastern Washington areas, is still not enough to get us out of severe drought. And so um, what I think about sometimes is sometimes when we can have this snow cover and it melts right in spring, right before the cheatgrass grows, is that we can have a bumper cheatgrass crop, which creates a carpet of fuel across the West and can be very, very harsh if we do have drought conditions or drier summer conditions. It grows really heavy, it gets really tall, and then it dries out like hay across the landscape. And if you light a match on that stuff, it's all very fine material and it can just blow up. So um, I don't know, snow is like great. I like it in the mountains, but I'm always thinking about what, what does this mean down the road for fire season? The other thing I thought was really interesting, Bill, was that um, WashDOT, uh, you know, put out a, a the transportation, message. the state transportation department, for those who don't know WashDOT. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they put out a Facebook message just a day, day or so ago, and they said that um, deer and elk are actually using where they have plowed the roads and where they have plowed on the sides of the roads as trails because the snow is so deep in the mountains, they're having trouble traveling. Mm. And um, I think that that is scary because if you're a motorist and you're going over the pass, there's going to be a lot more deer and elk toward the roadway than normal. And um, this is actually a problem over in uh, Southeast Oregon as well, where they have uh, put grasses in the the medians and in the areas alongside the roads that mature at a different rate than the natural uh, grasses in, in the habitat. And so the elk and deer are attracted towards the roadway. That's an unfortunate uh, instance, but they, they planted miles and miles of these types of uh, grasses. So um, I've seen that before, and I think it's real dangerous to have those animals kind of interacting with the roadways at a higher rate. Mm. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and, you know, just a few days ago, um, I made the trip with one of our photojournalists um, up through Snoqualmie Pass, Blewett Highway to Leavenworth. And we were really nervous. We weren't sure what to expect. Obviously, um, both of those highways were back open, um, but we were going very slow. I'd say 35 to 40 ish. Um, and at that point, I think there were just less drivers on the road period in those areas, which was helpful, but I, I agree with you. I mean, if, you know, there's deer or elk or once, you know, higher traffic resumes, um, it's going to be pretty scary, but I did hear also from the mayor of Leavenworth, you know, with these milder days that we're having now, it's a much needed break as long as it's not extreme melt, um, which it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. So that's good news um, for, you know, some of those cities and towns that were impacted. I heard the mayor of Leavenworth interviewed on KOW, actually our new uh, daily noon uh, local program, Soundside. And the mayor said that um, they've been doing a lot of business because some of the, the lower pandemic travel has meant uh, lower attendance for some big tourist destinations. But in Washington state, it means, well, I'm going to drive to the beautiful mountains instead of flying out to, to wherever. And, uh, and they've, they've had a lot of people. If you haven't heard Soundside, by the way, you can listen to that Monday through Thursday at noon right here on KUOW or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, final thing about, uh, if we're going to talk about snow and, and the passes, we've got to talk about uh, onions and potatoes did did you all notice the 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 stuck it it's like it's part it's part snow I'm sure it's part labor it's part supply but um, did anybody notice some empty grocery store shelves this week? I was uh, over at a grocery store I won't name which one and uh, I noticed because I wanted to go get chicken breast 
There was absolutely none. I think all that was left were chicken drumsticks, no thighs. It was like totally ghost town in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we uh, tried to get a lemon a couple days ago and we're having a hard time. And uh, a lot of other items like milk even has been a, a problem. I'm lactose intolerant. So that was even worse. Like there was people were rating the lactose intolerant milk when all the regular milk ran out. Hey, stay away from our area. You got it was down. It was down to like the weird oat milks that nobody wants, you know. (laughs) Chase, what were you making your what were you making your potato onion soup out of? Uh, you know, I feel like I'm just, uh, I have to confess, maybe not a very good cook, or maybe I don't cook that much. Um, because I, I live right in the center of Seattle. And so I don't really do like big grocery hauls. I kind of just like go to the grocery store every day and pick something up. Um, and so I have not been having problems, but it might also just be because I am a bad cook. So I'm not looking for like a specific potato. Um, and maybe I just am grabbing whichever, maybe I'm the people taking the milk because I'm like, okay, I'll just take the, I don't know, the almond milk today. It's a white liquid. I'll take it. All right. It's you. You're the one. That's Chase Burns, editor at Gourmet Magazine. Uh, oh, wait. No, I'm sorry. The, uh, the stranger. Chase is at the stranger. Jennifer Lee is at Fox 13, Anna King with KOW and Northwest News Network. And we're on Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. You can live stream. You can watch the show on YouTube or Facebook. In any case, we're going to be right back with more Week in Review after a short break. It's 1239 on KUOW 949, Seattle's NPR News Station. I'm Bill Radke. Great to have you along here for Week in Review. My guests are Fox 13 reporter Jennifer Lee, Northwest News Network correspondent Anna King, and Stranger editor Chase Burns. We're going to talk about some arts news in just a moment. Uh, but a moment ago, we were talking about uh, you know, the, the snow and the passes and the supply shortages and getting back and forth between eastern and western Washington. And I just uh, realized that we didn't mention something, Anna, that you had told me about that I hadn't really considered is that winemaking, not just grapes, but the whole winemaking ecosystem is dealing with some stuff. I wondered if you could just fill us in with that. Yeah, this is where I just want to be like, oh, no. <laughs> okay, <this laughs> not is... my pandemic wine. So, no, so it's kidding, not your but... non-lactose milk, but you're also wine is close to your heart. I know. Well, so the problem is, is that they are out of glass in many cases, so they can't get the bottles that they're trying to make their wines uh, be put into. And when you can't get the right bottle, it sets off this chain reaction of effects that uh, really uh, can screw up the whole process. If you can't get the wine out of the tanks and into the the bottles, then you don't have any room for the new wine coming down the line in the new year. You also don't uh, have the right screw caps or corks or tin closures because those all are very particular sizes. So if you have a different size bottle, none of that stuff works. And so if you have to order all those things, it can just get your whole timing schedule way off. And of course you can't put wine in a bottle and then not cork it right away, uh, or it would not uh, hold up very well. And so you just can't have these things being delivered late. And uh, in the, in the large scheme of things, you know, this could really uh, wreak havoc on small boutique wineries that just need maybe like a hundred cases of uh, glass. They are at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to like being able to get um, purchase uh, all this glass. And then the other problem is, is large, large winemakers, they're not able to get maybe the volume that they need. So like a Chateau Saint-Michel perhaps would have trouble getting maybe all their volume, even though they're at the top of the heap for priority, they need a lot of glass. And um, I talked to Chateau Saint-Michel yesterday and they said, you know, it's really tough. Uh, They're not having as many problems with the glass, but they are having some difficulties with trucking. They have the glass, they know where the glass is, but can they get the glass to the doors of their winery where they need to do the work? 
And can they get those bottles back out to the grocery stores, restaurants, and other locations across the world that they want to sell those bottles? And why is there a glass and bottle shortage? So most of the glass comes from China, and then a large portion of glass comes from Mexico. And both of those countries with tariffs and with trucking shortages and with COVID have been under strain and shipping problems, getting it across the ocean. Uh, That's been a lot of problems to get it here. And then the other um, interesting thing was that a lot of U.S. companies have actually been retooling their um, their operations while the pandemic was going on, but it was kind of ill-timed because there really wasn't a, a downward uh, motion of wine drinking in the pandemic, and uh, people want their wine. They just want it at the grocery store, maybe not at a restaurant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I love you reporting. Thanks for filling filling <laughs> us in, Anna King, uh, Northwest News Network and KUOW. OK, let's continue on the Week in Review talking about some of the big news of the week. This week, the trailer came out for the new Steven Soderbergh, uh, Zoe Kravitz movie filmed in Seattle. An agoraphobic tech worker discovers recorded evidence of a violent crime, but is met with resistance when she tries to report it. Seeking justice, she must now do the thing she fears the most. She must leave her apartment. I'm a voice stream interpreter. I may have heard a crime on one of the streams. The devices pick up lots of things. Just mark this degraded audio and delete it. I am not capable and you know it. I think a woman might need help. How do I find out who she is? And why is this big news of the week? Well, if you're a Zoe Kravitz and Steven Soderbergh fan, there's that. But also Chase Burns, there is a proposal in the state legislature this week to get more movies filmed here. And yet I remember there was a rumor that the production team for this movie supposedly swept a Pioneer Square homeless encampment so they could shoot the film. Was that true? Um, we, we, we heard that rumor too over the summer, last summer when they were filming and we reached out to a few different places to try to verify it. We talked to the crew and they said they didn't do it. And then we talked to the city and they said that it didn't happen. So, and we tried to find some people who might've witnessed it or experienced it and we couldn't find it. So I think as of now, that is a rumor. Um, but there were people certainly saw that production sort of popping up all around the city because they were filming right downtown. Um, by Westlake Park and they were filming these big scenes that I think one of the things that's really funny is it was supposed to be rainy and it was this like rare time that was like really really (laughs) sunny in Seattle so they were like spraying down the streets to try to make them look wet. So the 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 non-rain caused a weather delay in the production of the film. (laughs) They, They were shooting a big protest scene right? Yes, because the part of the movie, I, I'm not exactly sure about the plot, but part of it is that the the city council in this movie creates some sort of ordinance that moves homeless people. And so they're protesting that ordinance. And Zoe Kravitz being an uh, agoraphobe has to sort of like run around the crowd and it creates a certain type of tension. So you had a, you have a lot of scenes of Zoe Kravitz kind of dodging around Westlake Park. Um, and she has this, this look that I think is so pandemic era because she has this like grown out blue hair and it's like trench coat with a hoodie. And she looks like disheveled, but also very stylish, which, you know, I relate to. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've seen you with blue hair, Chase. Yeah. Um, but on the on the bills that are passing through um, the, the Senate and the House, um, the, Washington State has famously has this sort of very weak uh, motion picture competitiveness program compared to its neighbors in the south and to the north. And so a lot of the times when people want to shoot something that's supposed to be set in Seattle, they'll go to Portland or they'll go to Vancouver, British Columbia, because those uh, governments offer more incentives than our our states our state does. And so we have a pool of money that goes out to certain qualifying films that spend a, a certain amount of in-state money. Um, and it's around like $3.5 million. And that um, gets drained really quickly every single year. And so a lot of filmmakers will talk about how that's why that really that's one of the main reasons why it's so hard to get things filmed in Seattle lately. Um, And so what a, a real bipartisan group of legislators are are presenting is uh, different sets of legislation that would ramp up that 
pool of money from 3.5 million to either 20 million or 25 million. Um, and the $25 million bill is from a Republican and it has a certain amount of money that would have to go towards rural communities. So like 6.5 million of that would have to be spent on films that are set around the state. And it's it's really not just a Seattle thing. Um, Spokane has a really active filmmaking community as well. Um, and so when you talk to filmmakers from like the mid 2000s, when this competitiveness program really got, got going, um, they talk about it sort of like turning on a switch and that suddenly there were all of these uh, jobs for local crews and local filmmakers and that they were able to, in a lot of cases, be able to sustain year round work in the filmmaking industry in the state. And so the hope is that by bumping it up substantially to 20 million or 25 million, we would just see a, a real flood of filmmaking um, within the within and across the state. Anna King's over in Richland, and I'm trying to think if, if I've seen a movie set in Spokane or filmed in Spokane or set in Eastern Washington. There's actually a film that I'm working a story on. I'm not going to scoop myself, but okay. um, yeah. Um, and the, and uh, it's a new, it's a film that's in production is, now and, you, but, yeah. and we don't know about it. Oh, okay. Well, tune in, go ahead, Anna. But, it, and, uh, then one of my best friends is a filmmaker in Spokane and is working on a, a larger project that'll be out in a couple of years. Um, but I think it is, it's really important work. I think it's great for our state to be seen, um, in the, in the, uh, kind of texture of what is happening out there. So many films are in California and in New York and larger cities. I really want to see some more rural films and some more films that uh, encapsulate the beauty of our state. It's a beautiful state. <laughs> Jennifer, yes. Yeah, I was going to say um, last year, um, <laughs> there are many Netflix shows that I watch, but um, a couple of them that come to mind were Made and Firefly Lane which, you know, absolutely loved watching them. But on that note, I was like feeling super proud, like, oh my goodness, this takes place in like the Seattle area or, you know, some of the islands. And, you know, just being interested, did some Google research. And, you know, most of them were actually filmed in Vancouver. Uh -huh, um, which yeah. I can't say that I'm like, oh, like shattered by it, but maybe, you know, a little duped a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like there's so much like, beauty in our state and it has so much to offer i definitely um can see the benefit of you know just opening the doors to having more filming done here chase another arts note this week the music director of the seattle symphony quit saying he felt threatened what's that about yeah, so the Seattle Symphony had um, this music director up until this week um, called Thomas Dowsgaard. He started in 2019, right before the pandemic happened. Um, he's Danish. So when the pandemic happened, he had to go um, back. I believe he lives in Copenhagen. And so there was this sort of very strained relationship that developed between him and the Seattle Symphony. And there were some uh, accusations that were made in the New York Times um, where he said he felt threatened and he felt unsafe. It, it was a little vague. They didn't really explain what that meant, if that was like physically unsafe or unsafe because of COVID. I mean, if I was... I imagine if I'm a European looking at America's COVID protocols, I would also feel unsafe, mm. but it wasn't clarified about what that meant. And the symphony denied those allegations. And when you when you look into it, it just seems like they had a, a very strange relationship in large part because of the pandemic. He came back finally last November um, and then left after a week citing an illness. Um, and we're seeing... Uh, kind of uh, symphonies lose their music directors across the country, actually, in a lot of different cities. So in many ways, it's a good time to be a music director because um, there are many symphonies looking for one. Um, but the Seattle Symphony has is suddenly without a head. Um, they have people coming in and filming, uh, filling in uh, in an interim position, but they will certainly be looking for a new music director soon. Mm -hmm. And one more arts news story I wanted to shout out to and this maybe is more interesting to people who've been who've lived here a long time as myself, but Bumbershoot has new leadership. This is the annual Labor Day Arts Festival at Seattle Center, and they're they're changing things up. Can you summarize that, Chase? 
Yeah, so Bumbershoot hasn't happened since mm, 2019. Mm. And that's when <laughs> AEG ran it. Um, and they ran into a lot of issues in 2019. There, I mean, people who've been to Bumbershoot the past couple of years could talk on and on about the issues. Um, but they ended up letting go of their contract. And Bumbershoot's been in limbo, largely because of the pandemic. But there's a new group of producers that's coming in. And they're all uh, familiar Seattle faces. The pr producing team is called New Rising Sun, which is a Jimi Hendrix reference. Um, and it, it's composed of Steve Severin, who's from Numos in Capitol Hill, um, Greg Lundgren, who runs Museum of Museums nearby on First Hill, uh, and Joe Paganelli, who is a concert promoter. Um, and so the three of them are taking over the festival. They We don't know a lot about what it's going to look like, um, but we can kind of imagine based on their track records. So Steve Severin being a part of Numos um, has had a long history with Capitol Hill Block Party um, and Greg Lundgren uh, for a museum of museums, it's a relatively new museum, but something that they're really amazing at is they can create really kind of fantastic exhibitions in tiny spaces. So in that museum, there's uh, there's a little theater called the Charles Mudede Theater. He's a writer at The Stranger, and it's a three seat theater. And it's in a little hallway and they play just little movies. And I've walked by that theater a lot and people like love it because it's so, it's just like so surprising to sort of be like, oh, there's this tiny little theater. So I would expect that- It's a private, private showing. Private showing, except they actually, the walkway is in front of the seats. So there's this weird kind of tension. Yeah. Um, but I would expect the new Bumber shoot will probably be a little bit like Numos meets Museum of Museums. Um, but, but again, it remains to be seen because it, they were just announced as the producing team. Um, it's not going to happen this summer. It'll happen next summer. So we have a bit of time to figure out what that will look like, hopefully. And it sounds like it will be, uh, cheaper, um, because a big complaint with Bumbershoot was the rising prices in the, in the last couple of years. Right. Any Jennifer, are you a Bumbershoot attender or is it, it was a big thing a long time ago and I've been here a long time. We were a smaller city and it was it was a big, you know, it was a big deal on your on your yearly arts calendar. But uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I I've personally never attended. But uh, when I first moved to the area, it was actually one of my first assignments. So I just remember being very impressed by, you know, the size and interest. Um, I feel like a lot of the people that I did meet were, you know, young people from all across the state. So I felt like it was definitely a destination event. And, you know, it's unfortunate to hear about, you know, just in general, how the arts have been impacted the past couple of years. So hoping that it'll be, you know, a strong new beginning next summer. Anna King, are there Eastern Washington versions of um, of uh, Bumbershoot or uh, the, God, the Memorial Day Fest is completely left my head? Folk life, um, you know, our big, big sort of big uh the big megillah of the of the yearly arts calendar over there uh, i mean uh, you, you uh definitely have the gorge a little thing called the gorge yeah. over here so um we have been seeing a lot of people go to um some like country music festivals over here there's one called like watershed and um there's a couple other uh you know different um long weekend type festivals at the gorge that have been drawing a lot of people this interestingly goes back to my thing about wildfires i don't want to diss you know like a lot of concert venues but i'm just saying if you had to get a lot of people out of the gorge really fast the experts say not gonna be happening real good so that was i don't know don't mean to be debbie downer but um it's always on my mind when I go to the gorge in the summer. And then the other thing is just that um, there is a, there's a festival here um, uh, called Tumbleweed um, and that is all folk life. And it's, it's usually a lot of the events are free. There are some concerts that you do have to pay for, but if you like folk uh, music or singer songwriter type music, it's just a wonderful event, and uh, that has been going on here. So if you're looking for a, a ticket out of town, that's a good one. How are the egress uh, avenues there? How are the exits? Tumbleweed, you got me thinking. <laughs> There's many exits, oh, and the, the parking lot doesn't back up too bad, so Excellent. it's a little bit easier than the gorge, yeah. Hey, we are nearing the end of another week in review, and uh, I always like to make a little time because sometimes the news, believe it or not, is not that jolly. 
And so I always want to make time to see if there, if anything happened this week that uh, made you smile, made you feel hopeful. Um, I'll start. So definitely, you know, just being able to visit Leavenworth and even though they were under a, you know, winter storm disaster recovery effort, just still seeing the positive energy and the kind attitude of the people who live there. And also the stunning postcard look of the Bavarian village was awesome. And then I actually am going to add a quick second one because I've been doing mask research and someone commented about your mask bill on Facebook. I just saw. What did they say? N95, right? Yes, it is. And my kids don't like to wear these because they call them duck bills. If I put the, it's, da- it's down now, but I say put it up. If I turn to the side here on the live stream, you see that? My kids hate that. That is not cool. Well, that is the mask that I'm like now in the hunt for. So seeing you wear it, it kind of made my day today. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for the first compliment I've, uh, I've gotten on my duck bill. And uh, let's talk. I'll be, I'll be happy to, to share some with you. Anything else smile worthy, team? Um, Some, I, oh, go ahead, Chase. Oh, I was just going to say, I've been watching uh, the show RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, it's been on for now 14 seasons, but we have a local drag queen named Bosco who's on. Um, and it's the first time that we've had a Seattle queen on in a few years. Uh, we have a history with one once with Jinx Monsoon, but it's the show just started last week. So if you haven't watched yet, there's it's going to be on for many weeks. So you can catch up and watch uh, a local performer who's still performing every week um, in Capitol Hill. Go Bosco. Uh, just a few <laughs> seconds left. Anna, what made you smile? Uh, I, I hiked up Candy Mountain for the first time in two years. Um, I, I had COVID and a long COVID case. Mm-hmm. And so it's been a, a wrestle back to, to life here for me. But um, going up that little mountain was amazing. And there were all these puddles of water that had froze and then refroze and then refroze again. And so they looked like little prisms with these little triangle shaped crystals um, all in them. And it was just so lovely to see the sagebrush bear and um, with the, the uh, lichen at their trunks that looked like light brights. It was just so gorgeous going up there on a winter's day. That is just where I want to leave it because what a beautiful image to, to go out on. Anna Kane, Northwest News Network. And we've also got Jennifer Lee from Fox 13 and Chase Burns from The Stranger. Thank you so much for being Week in Review this week. Great to see you. Thanks, Phil. Produced by Sarah Leibovitz and Kevin Kinestead. Social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. I'm Bill Radke. See you next week. I'm headed for a land that's far away. Besides the crystal fountain.